Oh, when, right? You're probably going to turn that thing down. I got one of those voices. It's, well, my wife says I'm a loud mouth, but I just like to say my voice projects really well. We're not going to spend any time in this text other than just to read it by way of introduction. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 12. And thinking about the greatness of our God, who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, and or measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or who as His counselor has taught Him? With whom did He take counsel, and who instructed Him, and taught Him in the path of justice? Who taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way? Of understanding. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Friends, that is the God that we serve. And that is a God that is foreign to the vast majority of the religious world today, much less the irreligious world. That is a God that is unknown by the vast majority of the religious world today. And we know that by the way they treat God. By the way they think about God. The way they project their ideas onto God. God and their their images of what they believe God ought to be. I want us to begin tonight by thinking about just a few false ideas about God and, and each of the three persons of the Godhead, and then we're going to get we'll get to the body of when man makes God in his image, and then close with some some closing uh, applications. And thoughts. I want us to think first of all about some of the false ideas that people have about God. And by the way, these are religious people. Religious people. And one is uh, the, the idea about God the Father. When, when people talk about and think about God the Father, they talk about Him as if He's some kind of giant grandpa or Santa Claus in the sky. That all he, all he lives to do is to pat his grandchildren on the head. As Doug said, we've, we've got our first grandchild. She's four months old and we love her. And, and, and my wife just spoils the devil out of her or into her. I guess maybe it might be. Spoils the devil into her. And we understand the love that, that you have for your grandchildren and everybody tells you what it's going to be like and, and you don't know what it's like till you get one. It's just the way that it goes. And you look at yourself different when you're a grandparent. And most people look at God like He's some great big granddaddy in the sky. You know, I never remember being rebuked by my, my grandpa. I spent a lot of time with my grandpa. But I didn't, I don't ever remember him rebuking me or, 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 you know, or grabbing me by the ear or, or yanking me up and, and tearing my tail up. Now, my grandma would grab you in the back of the head. You know that short hair right down there at the bottom? And she could drag you all over the house with just a little pinch of hair. 
But my grandpa never did, never did treat his grandkids like that. And a lot of people think about God that way, that, that God just looks at all of humanity at, as all of his grandchildren, that, that all he can do, he can't wait to go to Walmart so he can take them with him and get them something. He can't wait to drive to town to buy him some ice cream. Or, or that, he's, that he's, just, he's just a great big heavenly Santa Claus and all he lives to do is just pour out gifts on his children day after day after day. He's nothing more than Grandpa or Santa Claus in the sky. Now, we would be remiss if we did not duly note that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. And that God loves His children's children. Genesis chapter 18 and verse number 19. But we also must remember, Nahum chapter 1 and verse 3, God will not at all acquit the wicked. In Exodus 34 and verse, uh, 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 not Exodus 34, but in uh, Acts 17 and verse 31, the Bible tells us that God commands all men everywhere to repent. We sing a little song at Vacation Bible School. I'm in a vacation Bible school, a little congregation called White House, and been helping them out for a number of years. And we sing a little, we call it a little plan of salvation song. Y'all ever seen the plan of salvation song? And you get up here and we'll, we sing it, and then we have a little lesson about it. And I said, now why, why is repent way up here at the top? And the children know, because it's the hardest thing to do. Repentance is the hardest thing to do in obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says God commands all men everywhere to repent. And He calls men to repent in view of the judgment, because He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He has ordained, and has given assurance unto all in that He has raised Him from the dead. God loves His children's children, but God commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, with regard to God, I want to think about another religious error in thinking about God. And that is the, that is the what was the gentleman's name? Jonathan Edwards. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And that's the idea that a lot of people have about God. That God is some kind of cruel, fickle, despot in the sky, just simply waiting for somebody to step the teeny tiniest bit out of line so He can fire a lightning bolt down and just burn you into ashes. Now a lot of people have that view of God. They think that God's just waiting, just, just salivating, rubbing His hands together, just waiting for somebody to step out of line. So he, can, so he can punish them. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but it's just kind of something that, that, that I think about. Um, I'm not a big fan of Hollywood, just to be honest with you. Not a fan. I don't watch a lot of television. I don't watch any movies for the most part. But when I hear people talking about their... About their uh, faith or lack thereof, I found one thing in common about professed atheists who had religious upbringing. 
And there's a common thread, and I, and this is, I don't want to paint with a broad brush or say this is always the case, but I have found that it is often the case when you find a professed atheist who had a religious upbringing, they have a background in Reformed theology, Calvinism. And there's no other way to view God other than through that lens of sinners in the hands of an angry God. Because that theology says that before the foundation of the world, God foreordained every single individual that was going to be saved. And there's nothing they can do about it. Even if they don't want to be saved, they're going to be saved. And everybody else, God predetermined to be lost. Before He ever made the world, He, he knew every, He named every individual that was going to be lost and sent them to hell before they were ever born. Now that's Reformed theology. Now, when you grow up in a household or in a religion that teaches Reformed theology that says God foreordained every single thing, good and bad, and that every person is predestined by the individual to go to heaven or to hell, that gives a person a very skewed idea about who God really is. And is it any wonder that those individuals reject the idea of God altogether? Listen, if that's what I'd been taught, I'd reject the idea of God altogether. Who would, want, who would want to serve a God who before the foundation of the world condemned 90 plus percent of the people to be damned to eternal perdition and burned in the fires of hell? Regardless of anything that they do or think or say, I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't serve a God like that. And so it just seems, it seems odd to me, or not odd, it just seems that there's a consistency there about people who were raised religiously but have embraced atheism, that there seems to be a Reformed theology thread that, that goes uh, among uh, those individuals. And it's also, by the way, it's also, you'll find that a lot of times the case in just the normal population. But they have this skewed idea about who God is and, and what God is. I want you to think about Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Think about the prophet Hosea, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, verse 8. God had been warning Israel time after time after time after time, if you don't turn and you don't change, I'm going to punish you. I don't want to have to punish you, but I'm going to punish you. And Israel was stiff-necked. When I say Israel, I mean the ten north. I'm speaking of the ten northern tribes. And they bowed their neck up against God, and God finally had got a bait of that. And he had enough. And he was going to punish his people. But even then, you find this statement from the mouth of the Almighty God. How shall I give thee up, O Ephraim? Ephraim being a representative, being the largest of the, of the, of the ten tribes land-wise, representing all of those ten tribes. And God says, how shall I give thee up, O Ephraim? But he knew he had to if he was going to be a just God and he was going to be a God of his word. 
If God is a cruel, fickle despot, think about his statement in Malachi chapter 1 as the people of God profess to love God, profess to serve God, and yet they offered him a penance of what they had. They offered him the halt and the, and the blind and, 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 and you know, basically things that they wouldn't give to their government, they gave to God. And God asked this question in Malachi 1 and verse 6, If I am a master, where is my reference? But think about the, the, the tone of the statement. It's not, it's not that God is, is saying that because He's fixing to drop the hammer on them. He's saying it to them to remind them of how good He's been to them, how good He is to them, and how good He will be to them if they will return to Him and do what He says. If I am a master, where is my reverence? And then even... In the throes of unspeakable judgment, going back in history to the destruction of Jerusalem. As the weeping prophet sat looking over a smoldering city reduced to nothing but dust and ashes, he said what? The mercies of the Lord, the long-suffering of the Lord, the song we sing, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercies Never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We sing that song at our area youth series. We sing it at, at our youth functions and, and at camp. But how many, how many of our people know the background of the words of that song? That song was written while there was blood in the streets, carnage everywhere, and God's people are being carried off into captivity for 70 years. And Jeremiah says, it is because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. That doesn't sound to me like the God of Calvinism. And then they have the erroneous ideas about Jesus, and there are a lot of them, but I just want to focus on one. A lot of people think that Jesus was some kind of I'm going to date myself here. Hippie. Now all of us old people know what a hippie is, right? I think the word for it today is bohemian. I'm not sure. I'm not up on all that millennial lingo. But look. Jesus had a beard, wore a robe, and he had sandals. But that don't make him a hippie. In fact, I know Jesus wasn't a hippie. You know why? You know why I know Jesus don't, wasn't a hippie? Had a job and chose homelessness over living in his mother's basement. So I know Jesus wasn't no hippie. He had a beard, he had a robe, and he had sandals, but he wasn't any hippie. But that's why I, the idea that so many people have about Jesus that just everything with Jesus is always cool, man. Whatever's going on, it's cool, it's fine, it's all right. Just live and let live. Just, just, just take it easy. But that's not the Jesus we read about early in the Gospel of John who cleansed the temple. You know, that's, not the Jesus, that's not the Jesus that, that went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the religious leaders of His day and their, and their rank hypocrisy. You know, Jesus told people, go and sin... No more. You know, with Jesus, everything wasn't just cool. It wasn't just all right. 
You know, Jesus made demands of people. And the first demand that we see that He makes of people is this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. The second demand we see that He makes of people is this. Follow Me. Follow Me. And all of the things that that entails... Think about the text in Luke chapter 9. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. If you're going to follow me, life can be difficult. If you're going to follow me, you've got to follow me to the exclusion of your mother, your father, your, your, your spouse, your children, your friends, all of your earthly possessions. Anything that you have to give up to follow me must be forsaken. That doesn't, sound, that doesn't sound like hippie culture to me. What you do? No? I don't think so. Jesus passed judgment on people. When He told people to go and sin no more, He was passing judgment on them. And I don't have time. I was going to spend a little bit of time uh, uh, tonight thinking about uh, some statements that... Well, I'll just make mention of these in passing. There's a, a real popular evangelical... Uh, uh, speaker and writer, her name is Jen Hamaker. She's from Texas. She's real popular in evangelical circles. And about less than a handful of years ago, she decided that what the Bible said about homosexuality wasn't right. And so she changes her ideas about what, it, about what loving relationships are all about and what marriage is all about. And um, I kind of got involved in a little Facebook discussion, Doug. Um, I made some friends and probably a few enemies. But most time when I read things, I'll just let them go. But some of this stuff, I just couldn't let it go. It's just too much. This is such a hard, heavy subject. I don't even pretend to have the answers, but there are two things I know. Jesus loves everybody, and He welcomes all of us into His house. He wouldn't quantify or ask questions. He would just love us. Does that, sound like the, does that sound like the attitude that most people have about Jesus? Here's another good one. A heartfelt thanks to you for opening a door into the exploration of unconditional love and faith. I don't know what that gobbledygook supposed to mean, but I'm pretty sure I don't agree with it. People say, Jesus never judged anyone. Well, in Matthew chapter 22, he told the story, the account, the parable of the wedding and the wedding feast. And when we get to the end of that account, there's a man who has slipped in there and the Bible says he came and he did not have on wedding attire. And the man was approached, he says, where is your wedding garment? And the man was speechless. So then Jesus said, oh, it's all cool, just come on in. No. Take this man and cast him out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If there was ever a statement about Jesus and the fact that not everything was cool with him all the time, it's got to be Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, and many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name done many wonderful works? Then I will profess to them, 
Not it's all okay. Not it's all cool. Depart from me. I never knew you. You who work lawlessness. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Now I'm going to give you one more misunderstanding about God with regard to the Holy Spirit. And I won't spend much time on this. But you think about all the foolishness being propagated in the religious world about the Holy Spirit. And and I've seen plenty of it. One One of our deacons and I used to run around and slip in at some of the charismatic revivals and gospel meetings just to watch what was going on. Free entertainment. And I heard some of the some of the most foolish things I've ever heard in my life being attributed to the Holy Spirit. And I said, I was just thinking to myself, I, you better be careful. I wouldn't attribute that to the Holy Spirit <laughs> if I was you. People being flipped out of trucks, you know, just like Holy Spirit explosions. You know, it's almost like the Holy Spirit is like the, he's almost like, I'm going to date myself again, the Tasmanian devil. Y'all know who the Tasmanian devil is, right? Bugs Bunny cartoon. You know, spinning around, spinning around, and everywhere he goes, just destruction. You know, people go flying everywhere. That's what people treat, that's what people say about the Holy Spirit now. He just comes in here blowing and going, man. People just gonna be flying left and right. And that's the kind of foolishness that they say. But it's all designed to appeal to the flesh. They start telling all these foolish stories in order to build up the excitement of anticipation. Well, maybe he'll come here tonight and do that. And then they'll start playing the music. It'll get a little louder. And 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 then the preacher get a little louder. And get a little louder. And then pretty soon, man, everybody's shouting and jumping up and down. Man, have y'all seen some of the YouTube videos of the dude jumped over the front end of the baptistry? Did a flip. Running around had his jacket over his head, jumped up and did a flip into the baptistry. Holy Spirit did that. Holy Spirit did that. No. No, afraid not. That's just some of the things, false ideas that religionists have. But I want to think about some specific ways in which men make God into their own image. When man fashions God in his image then he makes God into his own version of humanity. For example, consider the God of heathenism. When I say heathenism, I mean idolatry in general. What's the one thing man doesn't think he can control? Sexual urges, right? And what do we find in idolatry? From the earliest days to the present hour, rampant, unbridled fornication. All in the name of religion. That's the God of hedonism. How about this? Disrespect for the sanctity of life. One of the earliest warnings Israel received was with regard to the God Molech, where they made their children pass through the... offered human baby sacrifices in the name of religion. And now we've got so-called professed Christian religions out having prayer services and blessing Planned Parenthood. Stand out in front of Planned Parenthood and offer a blessing on Planned Parenthood in the name of the God of Heaven. Mm -mm. 
That's making God in your image. Think about this. Think about the God of Catholicism. What would have been, what have been the results through the ages and the annals of history of the God of Catholicism? Well, during medieval times, he was a God of war and subjugation. You know, but so-called baptizing or Christianizing people at the end of a spear. By the way, that's true baptismal regeneration. If you want to know what baptismal regeneration doctrine is, that is it. That you can put a gun to a man's head and dunk him in the water and make a Christian out of it. That's baptismal regeneration. That's what that is. What about, what about the, the, the Catholic God of gambling? I mean, every bingo hall I've ever seen was owned by a Catholic church. Except for the ones that they started in Alabama. You know, charity bingo. When I lived in St. Louis for a little while, we had a softball team and we played our games at the ball field sponsored by the Knights of Columbus, which is a Catholic organization. They sold beer at the concession stand. And a Catholic friend of mine in Baton Rouge was advertising something going on during... Get this. They have drinking parties during the Holy Week. And the parish was selling alcohol. And, and he made a guarantee that their drinks wouldn't be poured light. All in the name of the Catholic God. What about the sale of indulgences? Pay to play. That's making God in your own image. What about the, the God of prosperity preachers? What about Joel Osteen's God? What about his God? God wants you to be Healthy, God wants you to be happy, and the most important one, God wants you to be, thank you, rich. That's right. That's right. The prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, the God of the prosperity preacher, that's making God in your image. But there's a God that's even worse than that. And that is the God of the uncommitted Christian. The God of the uncommitted Christian. And even in an audience, of, especially in an audience of this size tonight, I can all but guarantee there's somebody in this room tonight that's worshiping the God of the uncommitted Christian. Yes, even on Wednesday night. You know why I know that? Because I used to go to church on Wednesday night when I wasn't living right. Who is the God of the uncommitted Christian? Well, he's not a God of utter holiness. And he's not a God who demands utter holiness from those that would follow him. He's the God of the advertisement that I saw yesterday that said, selling t-shirts, I love God, but I curse a little. That's the God of the uncommitted Christian. The God of the uncommitted Christian says, you were up really late last night. And it doesn't even matter what you're doing. You just go ahead and sleep in. God understands. God understands. You go hang out with those people. And you let some of that rub off on you. That's all right. Let me give you just a little insight on something. 
There's an old saying that says, if you play with it, you'll smell like it. If you play with it, you'll smell like it. When I was a kid growing up in South County, St. Louis, in our little old neighborhood cul-de-sac, this back in the early 70s, there was a creek that ran through our neighborhood, and apparently some folks' septic systems wasn't that good because that creek smelled bad. But it was full of crawdads. And all the boys in the neighborhood used to have, we used to have contests to catch most crawdads. Get a stick, a string, and a piece of bologna, and you stick it in the water. And when that string starts moving, if you lift it up ever so carefully, he'll hang on to it. And you put your crawdad in your coffee can. And at the end of the day, everybody counts up who catches them. And you dump them back in the water so you can go back and fish again tomorrow. We lived up at the top of the hill. And mom or dad wanted to get out on the porch on overlooking the sun deck, and they'd holler for me, and I'd holler, coming. You know, they'd holler me, I'm coming. And here I come. I no sooner get to the door. By the way, I should, should have told you all this. I wasn't supposed to be at the creek. But I was there a lot. I come through the door, and the first thing my mom would say, have you been at the creek? I'm like, you can't see the creek from the house. How do you know I've been at the creek? Never did know until I was a sophomore at Free Harmon University. Ag major. We went over to, to Ames Plantation. Dr. Anderson run Ames Plantation where the National Bird Dog Trials are. They also have big row crop operation, hog operation. We went to all the hog clearing houses. I had on this nice wool jacket that I got for Christmas. So we're on our way home, and it's cold outside, and I take my jacket off once we get in the, in the van, and I stick it down underneath where the heater's blowing out. And they turn the heater on, and all of a sudden, the whole van smells like a hog fair in the house. And can't nobody figure out what's happened. And we figured it out. My jacket, that wool coat had soaked up the odor of that hog fair in the house. And it, we'd spread that whole odor all through that van. That was a long ride home, y'all. That was a long ride home. But I learned right then how my mama knew. I didn't have to get in the creek to smell like the creek. And I didn't have to get in and roll around with the hogs to smell like the hogs. And the same goes for us and our associations. You don't have to get in and roll around with them. You spend enough time with them, you're going to smell like them. God said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, a direct quote from Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. God said, Pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see God. Paul wrote to the Corinthians after telling them to come out from among them and be ye separate. Wherefore, and says, I will, I will be a father unto you, and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Almighty. Worst, one of the worst chapter breaks ever in the New Testament between chapter 6 and chapter 7, 2 Corinthians. 
2 Corinthians 7, 1 belongs in chapter 6. Because it says, Wherefore, beloved, having these promises, let us purify ourselves of all, A-L-L, all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The uncommitted Christian does not serve a God of utter holiness. He serves a God that makes very few or little real demands on his mind, on his money, and on his time. Habakkuk said of God, Thou art of pure eyes than to behold iniquity. The God of the uncommitted Christian. So as we close tonight, as we think about when man makes God in his own image, I don't want to serve that God. That God is always subject to change. He's always subject to a vote. And if you don't believe me, go back and ask the Methodist up in St. Louis earlier this year. Were they going to vote on whether or not what God says about homosexuality is true or not? It's still true as it was the day he wrote it. I don't care what your vote is. That's making God in man's image. We need to commit ourselves to, first of all, learning who the God of heaven really is. And I've got a long way to go in that respect. But we need to get back to learning about who God is, what God demands of us, and what changes we have to make in order to allow ourselves to be conformed to the image of His Son. Thank you all so much for being here tonight and for your good attention. It's been a joy and a privilege uh, to be with you. And I'll turn it back to Doug this time.